as you get into your text, highlight the tension in your text, number one. It's in the text already, highlight it, bring it out. Number two, keep bold biblical statements bold. Don't dilute them or denude them. Uh, Number three, when presenting the biblical truth, also give credit to what you can in the opposing view. The late, great preacher Haddon Robinson had a preaching axiom that went like this. When the tension is gone, the sermon is gone. I'm Matt Woodley, and I'm here with my co-host of Monday Morning Preacher, Kevin Miller. So, Kevin, what is tension? Why does it matter in our sermons? How do you keep it? We're going to explore these questions and more. I can feel the tension rising already. Kevin, I'm on the edge of my seat. The suspense is killing me. So tell me, (laughs) what is this? I think you just showed us how not to keep tension in our sermons. Oh, that's how you don't do it. Yeah, the the hyper melodrama with the rising voice. No, that's that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Glad I can be an example for everybody. Thank you. But in all seriousness, Kevin, it's great to have you as our co-host. Always fun to be back with you, man. Okay, so Haddon really did like to say that, when the tension is gone, the sermon is gone. Now, I realize I didn't create good tension there, but I just want to ask you, isn't preaching about making things clear, declaring God's word with power? So what is tension and why does it even matter? Well, I think what Haddon was getting at there, Matt, is that, you know, when we lose tension in our sermon, listeners lose interest. It's the same reason, like, if you and I are watching, like, an incredibly boring movie— it's really hard to stay engaged. And the movies that carry us along are the ones where there's some unanswered question, some unresolved issue, there's some tension going on, and we don't know how it's going to resolve. So bottom line is, when we lose tension in the sermon, our listeners lose interest. And the reason that matters is, is not for our egos, it's that when they stop listening to the sermon, they lose that direct, open-hearted contact to the Word of God being preached. And so, in in Haddon's words, the sermon is gone. Yeah, and I think you're going to say this in just a few minutes, but I think one of the really important points to make right up front here and be really clear about is that the Bible has tension. You know, the biblical text has tension. The overarching narrative of Scripture has tension. So it's not like we're just making something up. Well, yeah, and you look at some of the parables of Jesus, and they have incredible tension. The prodigal son, what's going to happen to him, and and the embezzling money manager, how's that all going to work out? And the reason those stories are so memorable and still pack a real punch is there's tension. Yes, absolutely. So in your usual concision and clarity— Wow, the word concision— have not heard that for a while. I love that. It's a good word. You have boiled this down. You've distilled it. You've distilled it to three sub-axioms of Haddon's original axiom. So we have the Robinson axiom and the Miller sub-axioms. So why don't you give us your, your three sub-axioms? Yeah, well, <laughs> let me translate that for our listeners. Um, <laughs> What I try to do is figure out, okay, so if Haddon's right, and I think he is, what are some very simple, practical ways we can ensure that the tension remains in the sermon? So yeah, let's let's look at three of them, talk back and forth, Matt. The first one I want to mention 
comes right at that moment in the sermon that I don't think we give very much attention to, which is when we're moving from our opening into our exposition, or what I sometimes call, are we moving from our hook into our book? And a lot of times we kind of drive quickly through transitions and don't really craft those. I know I'm guilty of that. And so what happens then is we transition from our opening into the biblical exposition, something like this, like, well, if you have your Bibles today, uh, you know, turn with me to John chapter four, Mm. or we'll say, you know, like, let's say the opening was a fishing story. You know, well, I thought of that time fishing when I read this week about Peter being called by Jesus, you know, or something like that. But what we're trying to do there is prepare people to listen with more engagement to the biblical exposition by highlighting the tension that's in it. You and I have pulled out of the Preaching Today archives a great example of how to do that. It comes from uh, Jill Briscoe's sermon on Habakkuk chapter 1. Yeah, so let's listen to this clip. Have you ever asked God questions and felt you haven't got a good answer? I heard about a little boy once that said to his father, How many people in the world, Dad? He said, I don't know, son. He said, How many stars in the sky? He said, I don't know, son. How many fish in the sea? Don't know, son. Dad, you don't mind me asking you all these questions, do you? No, son. How are you going to learn if you don't ask questions? (laughs) Maybe you've been that sort of parent. But have you ever asked God question after question after question and sort of got a shrug of the shoulders from heaven? You're not getting anything back. You don't feel you're hearing what God is trying to say to you. Habakkuk was a man who is introduced to us with a lot of questions. And we get the idea that he's not getting the answers. So, Kevin, that's a great example of tension within the text. What did Jill do there that works? Well, I think usually we promise an answer to the conundrum, but what she did was even better, where she she promises that God speaks to Habakkuk, but then she says he got an answer that he didn't expect and that he particularly didn't want. Now, that... It adds tension. That is interesting. That I want to hear more about. Yeah, absolutely. Because she's hooked a very human need and longing. That's People live. We live in this tension. This is our life. So give me an example of how you've developed tension in one of your recent sermons. Let's see. I was preaching not so long ago from Luke 16 about the unjust steward, or as I called him, the embezzling money manager. And here's how I transitioned from my opening. I said, Jesus teaches us how to make our future secure. And he does it in what's been called the strangest story Jesus ever told. And it's a strange story because in this story, the hero of the story, the protagonist, the person that we're all supposed to emulate, according to Jesus, is a cheat and an embezzler. So what I'm trying to do there is add a little interest, like, hey, why would Jesus choose this, you know, gnarly character as the person from whom we are to learn? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on the parable of the talents, and part of the tension is that that text is the poor one talent guy. Like, why does he get the shaft? First of all, he only gets one talent. And then, you know, you feel sympathy for the guy, and Jesus in the parable shows absolutely no sympathy for him. And to raise those questions that naturally arise rather than to try to bury them somewhere. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Sometimes we've 
we've preached a passage so often that we've already sort of run ahead to the answer and the explanation and the unlocking of it. Yeah, that's a good point. We've wrestled with the tension and then we've come up with clarity on the other side of that, but our people have not. So we need to help them walk through that a little bit. Yeah, really well said. Let's go to number two. First one is just highlight the tension that's already in your biblical text. It's there. It addresses human questions, longings. So raise that out. Second, Kevin. Keep the bold biblical statements bold. Lean into the challenging parts of the text. Let it be challenging. And I think, you know, our our educational system teaches us not to make simple, bold, declarative statements. You know, like if you're in a seminary class, church history or something, and you write down in your paper that, you know, well, in his 95 theses, Luther attacked indulgences, that paper is going to come back from the prof circled in red and say, well, actually, at this early stage of theological development, Luther wasn't attacking indulgences per se. He was merely attacking the abuse of indulgences. And you get that kind of comment back from a prof two or three times and you realize, oh, to succeed here, I got to nuance this, man. I got to show that I understand all the subtleties and that and that I'm not a rube just boldly declaring things anymore. But Jesus doesn't do that. John the Baptist doesn't do that. The apostles do not do that. Mm. Read Peter's sermon on the book of Acts. He's like, yeah, you murdered the author of life. Great preachers like Chrysostom, they all just lay it out there. And I think we need to push into those hard statements in scripture. Let them be the 96 mile an hour fastball. Don't toss it like a big softball. Yeah, that's that's really good. When I visited Nigeria, you've been there as well. Our Nigerian preacher friends, they don't have a problem with this. They don't nuance the boldness out of the biblical text. They don't backpedal. They just lay it out there really bold. And I think they are closer to the world of Jesus and the apostles and to that kind of declarative urgency than sometimes we are. Give me an example from your preaching. Well, I, you know, I was preaching from the Sermon on the Mount and got to that very difficult statement that Jesus makes right after the Lord's Prayer, where he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And we all go, oh, that's really wonderful. But then he adds, but if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. He won't do it. And Jesus is teaching very clearly Mm -hmm. in Matthew 6.15, if we don't, God won't. And it's tempting to quickly move past that. You know, I was trying to understand that verse, and I actually read this in a commentary. Here's what the commentator wrote. This does not teach that humans must forgive others before they can receive forgiveness themselves, which he gives no basis for, because that Mm -hmm. seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying. But anyway, the commentator might be right. But here's my point. Why would Jesus intentionally teach this as though he's not right? Mm. There's something going on. And so instead of quickly explaining the tension away, I might even try to dial it up by going to Matthew 18, where Jesus teaches a story about unforgiveness. And he says, the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured. Mm. (laughs) That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. Ow. So yes, those challenging texts can be explained. I, I would say they even need to be explained for the sake of our people but not in a way that denudes their power. Whoa, that's a great phrase. Do not denude the power of the text. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> if you can use concision, I can use denude. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. So what you're saying then is allow your people to dwell in the discomfort of the text. Don't immediately take that away from them. Again, that's from the text itself. It's not a gimmick we're adding. Very much so. Yeah, I think that's very well said. So anyway, let the bold statements of the text remain bold. They may need interpretation, but they shouldn't lose. They should be a French roast, not a blonde roast. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's good. Uh, so number three. Third and finally for today, as a way to make sure that we have tension remaining in the sermon, and that is this, Matt, you know, when presenting the biblical truth, also give credit to whatever we can in the opposing view. And I, I think there's nobody in our time who has done this consistently so effectively as Tim Keller. Yes. And he explains how he does it in his book on preaching called Preaching, but the subtitle is Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism. And he spends a, what I think is the best part of the book explaining how to engage the secular mindset in a way that actually the sort of crackling tension between the biblical worldview and the secular mindset is maintained and there's interest. Sometimes we lose the interest because we portray the secular mindset quickly or kind of without really giving it its due. So it's not much of a struggle, you know? <laughs> yes. It's, it's not too compelling. So anyway, just to channel a little bit of Tim's content from that great book, he talks about how we have these idols from things that were good, that are good, but then we supercharge them and they take on a place in place of God, things like reason and progress and our own identity and desires. You know, like for example, people today are really convinced that self-worth comes as we express and fulfill our desires, regardless of what others say. Yeah. Every movie basically has that theme. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so Tim will basically try to draw out from that, well, yeah, we don't want to go there, but there is something true, right, about being authentic to what God has placed within us, you know? And so he'll draw out something that he can affirm in that worldview, even though it may have become idolatrous. There's something there. He is definitely the master of that. I think of it this way, like, let's say there's a circle, and in that circle is an opposing worldview, you know, that's popular, that people find compelling, that people desire, that people just sort of assume. It's just sort of a baseline assumption in our culture. He will, like, step into that circle and then describe, like, sort of like, hmm, I can see why this is attractive, you know, and he treats the viewpoint very fairly and why people might adopt that. And then he'll step outside the circle and go, but wait a minute, let's look at it this way as well. You know, so, and then he'll critique it. But before he critiques it, he gives it a, a brief, but a very fair and cordial hearing and viewpoint. And I think as preachers, we need to do that as well. You know, before we blast it, let's, uh, let's talk about what is compelling about that. What is even maybe matches up with biblical truth, but then let's step outside of it and critique it. Boy, you said that even better than I did. I wish I had been quiet. Uh, <laughs> well, do you have an example? You of, said it too. Uh, <laughs> I'll contrary, my friend. You said it better. But anyway, uh, do we have an example from uh, Keller? Yeah, so we don't have this on tape, but let me give this to you. So this is from a, 
a sermon he did called Literalism, Isn't the Bible Historically Unreliable and Regressive? Question mark. So let me read some parts, okay? And then you go ahead and just add some comments. So here's what Tim said. He says, let me give you a personal example from this from my own life. Many years ago, when I first started reading the book of Genesis, it was very upsetting to me. Here are all these spiritual heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and look at how they treat women. They engage in polygamy, and they buy and sell their wives. It was awful to read their stories at times. Now, Yeah, now, see, he has just stepped into the circle of the New York skeptic and said, yeah, that pinged me when I read it. I, I, I found that difficult to accept. I can see what you mean, he says. Right. So then, here's Keller again. But then I read Robert Alters, who's a uh, Jewish scholar at Berkeley, The Art of Biblical Narrative. Now, what Tim does there is he's about to step outside the circle and critique people's impressions of Genesis. But notice who he's quoting for this. It's not like a conservative evangelical. He's quoting a secular Jewish scholar at Berkeley. Yeah. And that is a voice that the New York skeptic will see as credible and trustworthy. And so he's using the secular source now to critique the secular viewpoint. Brilliant. It's genius. Yeah. Uh, Keller again. Here he is again. In Alter's book, he says there are two institutions present in the book of Genesis that were universal in ancient cultures, polygamy and primogeniture. Is that how you pronounce that? I think so. Polygamy said a husband could have multiple wives, and primogeniture said the oldest son got everything, all the power, all the money. Alter points out that when you read the book of Genesis, you'll see two things. First of all, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. Having multiple wives is an absolute disaster, socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and relationally. Secondly, when it comes to primogeniture, in every generation, God favors the younger son over the older. He favors Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. Alter says that you begin to realize what the book of Genesis is doing. It is subverting, not supporting, those ancient institutions at every turn. This is just classic Keller. What he has just done is taken the surface impression that the secular mind has. I can't trust the Bible because look how it treats women and blah, blah, blah. And just taken them into a secular source that says, wait, you're not even reading Genesis correctly. Genesis is actually flipping those ancient institutions and showing that God subverts them. Yeah. that That is just a classic And notice when Tim's doing that, there's tension. There's some crackling, like, wait, 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 could I have misunderstood this all these years? Uh, Right. That that is totally brilliant. So let's summarize these three sub-axioms, Miller's three sub-axioms. As you get into your text, highlight the tension in your text, number one. It's in the text already. Highlight it. Bring it out. Number two, keep bold biblical statements bold. Don't dilute them or denude them. (laughs) Uh, Number three, when presenting the biblical truth, also give credit to what you can in the opposing view. So, Kevin, in your experience, when you create tension, what's happening in your people as you preach? What difference does this make? Well, you know, if people came to my sermons completely, like, open and full of concentration, that would be one thing. But the fact is, 
you, I, and every other person who ever starts listening to a sermon is somewhat distracted by our own inner noise in our head. We're worried about a relationship. We're thinking about the movie we watched last night. We're hungry and our stomach growls. And there's all these things. And so the more that I, as a preacher, can help the listener stay engaged and lean in, the more they'll connect to the life-giving truth that God gives to his preached word. And so if people will lean in, listen longer, stay connected to the Word of God, then I'm, I'm helping them in that by keeping tension in the text. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of your main points here is you don't have to make this stuff up. You don't have to be gimmicky. You just you look for the tension in the text, how that speaks to the human heart, the longings and the questions of your people. You're loving your people. You're thinking what they're going to think, and then how does the Bible address that? So stay true to the biblical text and bring out the tension that's there. So, Kevin, thanks for these great insights on keeping tension in your text, and I'm going to try to keep this in mind as I prepare my next sermon. Kevin, thanks for being our co-host. Great to be with you, Matt.